Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. Welcome back to Patrick Boyle on Finance. There's been a lot of news over the last week or so relating to GameStop. And so I'm very excited today to bring on my guest, Victor Hagani, who was a former partner at Long-Term Capital Management. He has since gone on to set up a new fund management business called Elm Partners. I'll give you guys a link to that in the description below. But in today's conversation, we talk about GameStop, we talk about the silver squeeze, We talk about whether hedge funds really do help each other out, because that is one of the big narratives that I'm seeing in the news right now, that hedge funds are helping each other out and they're at war with retail traders. We'll see what his thoughts are on that topic, how he invests his money today, what he thinks of things like short selling and trading options, how spread trades work, and what his life is like post-LTCM. Well, we'll... We'll get going. And I guess the very first question that I want to ask you is just about your your overall career path, because on my channel, I've recommended to a, a lot of viewers, people often ask me what books on finance should they read? And I put up a top 10 list. And on the list is Liars Poker and also When Genius Failed. And so you're in uh, 20% of the, the books that I recommend. And... Um, I guess I just wanted to ask you, you know, you you were quite a young guy in, in both of those books. And I, I guess I just wanted to ask you about your career path. Like you started out at Solomon Brothers. What was that like in, in the 1980s at Solomon? Well, it was a it was a it was a wonderful, exciting time, you know, with with lots of change. It was on the back of the deregulation of interest rates and the um, and 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 the uh, you know beginning of derivatives markets on financial instruments and, and so on. It was just a, a wonderful time where there was a uh, you know a feeling that um, we could come up with all kinds of solutions that would improve the welfare of uh, of, of clients. You know that there was a real um, uh, use for for many of the instruments in terms of risk sharing and risk transfer. And that um, you know, being at <clears throat> being at an investment bank that was open to doing these things was you know a great uh, opportunity for career advancement and to uh, you know to earn a lot of money you know etc. It was it was a really special time and you know, it was a time when you know there was this movement of people and ideas from uh, the laboratory you know into practice that was really exciting you know and and uh, you know all kinds of Nobel laureates and you know, game theory and economics and finance, you know, were uh, coming themselves to be involved in Wall Street, you know, but also, you know, a lot of their their students, um, you know, were uh, were turning up and and really making, you know, overall lots of improvements, you know, even though, even though there were big bumps along the way. Did you go straight into the bond arbitrage group, or, or what? What happened, like when you when you started? At, no, I started um, off in in research. I, I had, uh, studied at the London School of Economics, which gave me a pretty good understanding of, uh, you know, a lot of the 
basic quantitative techniques that that we were going to that we were using and, and developing, um, you know, in research. So I started off in research for a few years, and then I was invited out to join the trading desk, and then I stayed working for John Merriweather for my whole career uh, until I, um, you know, until I took a long sabbatical starting in about 2001 uh, for 10 years. And then, you know, I wound up starting Elm Partners, which um, was, you know, it's one of these businesses where I built Elm Partners to help manage my family's savings and, and wealth such as it was after LTCM. And, uh, and just found that a lot of people were looking in the same direction of wanting to have you know uh, the the benefits of um, of of indexing, low cost diversification, transparency, tax efficiency, but realize that um, when you say you want to use indexing, that there's still more decisions to make. And we were helping people, or we help people to to make all those decisions and and keep costs low and diversification high, and kind of keep the uh, keep the eyes on the road ahead rather than being totally passive and, and, and letting anything happen. You know, you, you've made a, a, you know, quite a transition, because I guess, in truth, probably the more obvious thing uh, w- would have been to stay in fixed income or to, uh, you know, stay on the hedge fund route. Now, when, when you guys started at, at uh, both Solomon and at LTCM, the whole fixed income arbitrage idea was kind of brand new, right? Like that, that wasn't a trade that was widely done at the time, was it? Uh, gosh, that's a good question. I think, I think that's fair to say. I mean, I think that John Merriweather and, you know, people similar to him at other firms really kind of pioneered things in the late 70s. So by the time I joined in 84, you know, it had been going on for a while. But I think that, yeah, definitely the, um, you know, that was the, the, the start of it. Um, Although I did, um, you know, I did get very friendly with um, with uh, Gene Cottrell. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, who who eventually became the managing partner of Phillips and Drew, um, that eventually got bought by UBS and the Big Bang in the UK. And Phillips and Drew was kind of like a Solomon Brothers, but in uh, the UK in London. And um, it was amazing, you know, how much sort of quantitative fixed income analysis was being done at Phillips and Drew. I mean, it was a real uh, soulmate to uh, Solomon and some of the other firms specializing in fixed income in the States. But, you know, the understanding of the fixed income markets and, 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 and so on, you know, is like probably somewhat traces to Marty Leibowitz and, um, you know, in his book, uh, Inside, Inside the Yield Curve. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and his work with Sidney Homer and so on. But really, in terms of putting these things into practice in a, a long, short sort of framework, you're, you're right. I think it really started in, in Solomon and a few other firms in the late 70s with people like John Merriweather, um, you know, getting, getting it all going. Now, while LTCM wasn't the sort of first hedge fund, it was probably the first famous hedge fund. I think, at least to me, it was. I had never heard of a hedge fund before LTCM. And obviously, okay. then uh, in the, the early 2000s, you know, as the dot-com bust occurred and the markets fell, the whole hedge fund industry became huge. And today, almost everyone knows what a hedge fund is. But you you obviously left that industry. Do you, I, I, I'm really interested in in your overall thoughts, but to a certain extent, I would argue that the industry has become 
awfully crowded in that, you know, LTCM was massive at the time, while today it would almost be considered a mid-sized hedge fund, right, based on the size of some of the other firms out there. Yeah, or, or possibly small. Um, no, but th there was a pretty thriving hedge fund industry when we set up our firm in 1993, you know, that, that Soros, for instance, already had a pretty long track record. I mean, a bunch of the sort of the all the all time greats, uh, you know, the hedge fund world were already in business for quite a long time. I mean, Steinhardt had been su super successful, you know, in uh, you know more than a decade before we set up. So there was a big there was a big field of hedge funds. In fact, it's funny when we got started, we were so different than the other hedge funds where, you know, Steinhardt and Soros and and Tudor and so on were really um you know, long, short, speculative, very heavily into um, uh, futures and, and liquid things and so on. And, and when we started, we tried to tell investors, well, we're kind of different, you know, maybe think of us not so much as a hedge fund in terms of this broad mandate, but that we're doing, you know, this relative value business. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's certainly grown uh, tremendously. And of course, you know, the first hedge fund, I think, goes all the way back to maybe to Ben Graham and, you know, Warren Buffett got his sort of start yeah. know, with, with effectively a hedge fund. But um, um, I, I, I may have lost a little bit of track. Well, no, I, I just almost right. mean that, yeah, that yeah, no one had heard of them. Like today, yeah. someone at a bus stop knows what a hedge fund is. Uh, when I started in yeah, absolutely. 2001, I started working for Vic Niederhofer, and that was in Connecticut, sort of in hedge fund central. But you know, if you told someone you worked for a hedge fund, they almost thought you were a gardener or something like people. The term wasn't widely known. You know. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you interested in small businesses? My name is David C. Barnett, and I've been podcasting and producing YouTube videos about buying, selling, financing and managing small and medium sized businesses for almost 10 years. I'm a former business broker and have owned and operated several businesses, and I've been advising business owners since the 1990s. Each week, I create a new podcast, which answers one of your questions, and I've always got amazing, exciting guests. You can find me on YouTube by going to smallbusinessanddealmakingpodcast.com, or just search David Barnett's Small Business in any podcasting app to find me. I look forward to seeing you around. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't realize you worked for uh, Victor Niederhofer. That's quite an experience. And I've, I've read his book uh, or his or one of his early books. And I heard him on a podcast recently talking maybe with Tyler Cowen or somebody that was really interesting to hear him talk about his, his history or, or not Tyler Cowen, but some podcast. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Victor is a joy to be around. Like I, it's a few years since I've met him. But one of the last times I was walking around New York talking to him and I just thought, gosh, this guy has ideas like he's just he's a big, big mind, you know. Yeah, yeah um, I really enjoyed hearing him talk about his life on this recent podcast. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about like, obviously, when things went wrong at long term capital management, what was it like? Because I imagine that you had what probably over a decade of sort of phenomenal success like things probably just kept getting better for you and then suddenly all the air got sucked out of the room what what was that like well you know it was i mean obviously it was it was you know a terrible experience you know that i mean it's 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 uh you know it's bad enough to um you know to to lose money it 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 uh you know it felt um 
you know, being in the limelight and so on was, was, was terrible. But the, the, uh, what mitigated it somewhat was that, um, the group of partners really stuck together and, you know, we operated mostly on a consensus basis. So, you know, individuals didn't feel, you know, that the, that the weight of the whole thing wasn't on, you know, one individual's shoulders, you know, as much as it might be, um, you know, in less of a, um, you know, consensus oriented organization. I mean, not that every, you know, not that everything was perfectly smooth, but, you know, in general, it, it you know, that, that it felt uh, more bearable, you know, in that we were in it, together by and large. Um, but you know, the, the really big, I think the really biggest lesson or, or uh, you know, interesting thing to take away from LTCM that, um, that hasn't really been uh, discussed or appreciated, I think enough, you know, in terms of when the books about LTCM and the case studies and so on were written um, is really to do with um, the, the, the fact that the um, that the partners, uh, you know, myself included, that we all had so much of our own savings invested in LTCM, and and um, you know, it's interesting. Like I, I, you know, I think that's still in many cases, not not in all cases, um, but in many cases, um, entrepreneurs and fund managers and 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 businessmen, um, you know, are just a little bit too, uh, are, are, you know, can be too uh, concentrated in their own uh, businesses or, or funds, you know, and I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I've really come to appreciate post LTCM is, is how the, um, you know, the insights of, uh, you know, from von Neumann and Morgenstern all the way up through, um, you know, financial economists today in terms of, helping us to understand choice theory and making good financial decisions under uncertainty, that that whole field um, is kind of undertaught and underappreciated. And I wish that I had a better appreciation for it at the time and how a very simple expected utility analysis, you know, would have really um, strongly suggested to all of us partners that, uh, that we should have had a lot less of our own money invested in the fund itself, as, as attractive as the expected returns seem to be, that the combination of having so much of our money in our fund and then our own ownership of the management company, that so if you if you thought that, oh, I'm gonna have 80% of my money in the fund, in the LTCM fund, and that might seem kind of, let's call it, you know, reasonable or prudent 80%, because you still have 20% on the side if everything goes wrong. Well, the thing is that if if the that that the value of the management company was probably for all of us was worth more than the value of our financial assets that we had in the fund. So 80% invested in the fund was really like 90% invested in, in the business, you know, and now yeah. it starts to look kind of crazy. And especially if you just think about, you know, uh, if we had lost 30% at LTCM, um, the management company value might have gone all the way to zero. You know, that we didn't need to lose as much as we lost in the fund for the management company to have been permanently or, or very significantly impaired. So I think, you know, that that lesson is is really important. And um, it's an interesting thing because for investors, they they want to see you kind of essentially all in. They want to feel that that if they're going to take a hit, that you're in the same pool as them. Um, and I, I often think, you know, when when you hear about uh, 
people talk about like Jeff Bezos, for example, and his huge wealth. But obviously, that's largely tied up in, in a company that he started. And for example, should he start selling down his shares and diversifying into the S&P, that would send quite a bad signal to, to the market, you know. So to a certain extent, as a fund manager or a business founder, you're you're almost forced to not be diversified. But then that then sometimes leads to either huge wealth being generated or someone's entire wealth being wiped out. Yeah. Well, I think that for fund managers, I think the pressure is a lot less um, because, because with entrepreneurs, there's the control issue. So, um, you know, that, that I think sometimes entrepreneurs wind up holding on to a lot more than would make sense from a, a risk-adjusted point of view uh, because they need, they need or want to maintain, uh, you know, the, the appropriate voting control of the entity. But for fund managers, you know, I think that investors are pretty savvy and like, okay, they want to see the manager with some skin in the game. But they also know that, you know, like if the manager is really trying to put all their money in there, that they're going to wind up, um, you know, in, in most cases, they're going to wind up getting kicked out, you know. And so is it really, you know, like if, if you're investing in a hedge fund or, you know, um, where you know that the manager really wants to keep reinvesting his incentive fee and all of that back into the fund, you kind of know that your days, that if the fund, if you picked a good manager, you kind of know that your days are limited with, with that manager. Um, and if and then if things go bad, you know, well, you you bear the the bad outcome. But in the really great outcome, where the manager has found that sort of secret sauce that really can generate sustainable high sharp ratios, you kind of know that you're going to be out. So I think yeah, I think it, with fund managers, I think the pressure is less than people think. Um, and you know, I think that the fund managers can make bad decisions when they have all their wealth on the line too. You know, that, that really the fund manager should be acting as an agent for the investor. But when the fund manager has all his money in there, it's difficult, you know, which hat do you wear? Like, you know, again, going back to LTCM, uh, you know, at some point in the crisis, we felt that we had a fiduciary duty to our investors. And so we tried to wear the hat of our investors. And even though we, you know, as, as, as individuals, we might have wanted to just get out and save and save some of our wealth with a liquidation at a big down print. We thought, well, our investors all have a small amount of their wealth invested with us, so they're not facing the financial distress the way that we are. Um, so we should do what we think is right for them. And instead of accepting, you know, a huge down bid from some entities to take to take over the fund. Um, and, and leave us with, you know, a down 70% or a down 50% outcome, we thought it made sense to see if we could raise some capital and preserve more of the value that was there. That, I guess, leads in slightly to the, the GameStop story that's, that's uh, going on in the market right now, where um, the problem is that this story is tied to so many market technicalities that a lot of people don't I feel fully understand what's going on. But one story that, that I think uh, the, a lot of people are putting forth, which I, I believe to be wrong, is the idea that Wall Street is looking out for their own and that the individual investors are getting uh, the, the rough end of the deal while Wall Street tries to defend the hedge fund. Now, I know your experience, uh, at least in the Lowenstein book, the story was very much that 
certain banks and other hedge funds who were invited in with the idea of possibly stabilizing the market uh, did the exact opposite. Essentially, they widened the spreads on you guys in order to uh, to sort of profit from the unwind. What are your thoughts on sort of how traders help each other out in, in tough situations? You know, the, the I mean, the, the market is a, is a jungle and everybody's out for themselves, you know, no doubt about that. And, you know, I think that um, you know, I don't know who used which journalist used the term bailout for LTCM, but you know, I can tell you that um, the partners of LTCM didn't get bailed out. I mean, we sold out. You know, we sold the portfolio of trades that we had. Uh, you know, down I don't know 90 percent to a consortium of thirteen banks. So there was no bailout. I mean, the, if there was any bailout, you know, the Fed was um, the Fed was you know, orchestrating these banks to come together to stabilize things. I mean, in some ways you could say that the Fed was um, bailing out the banks, but, um, you know, there wasn't a bailout. There was no transfer. There was no transfer, um, you know, of money, um, you know, to people that got into trouble or anything like that. I mean, so, um, you know, and indeed, you know, the market's behavior in the lead up to LTCM wasn't to um, say, oh, you know, Let's let's all get together so this doesn't happen. I mean, everybody was just in a frenzy of liquidation of, of everything. Um, so you know, I think I, you know I would find it really doubtful. I mean, that you know, if if point uh, seventy two was an investor in Melvin Capital, <coughs> you know, I, I think that they would just be thinking of their own interest in terms of wanting to invest more in there to stabilize it. I, I don't know the details at all of the situation, but you know, I would say in general, you know, the market is a pretty harsh environment and there's not a lot of uh, charity among investors or traders at all. Uh, so, um, you know, if anything, you know, I could imagine that, you know, that people seeing the, the dynamic that, you know, that, that anybody that could identify these dynamics of the GameStop situation and related situations would actually try to get on the bandwagon rather than trying to somehow altruistically stabilize the market, you know, so, um, you know, I'm sure that there were some, uh, you know, that, that we'll find out that there were some uh, sort of establishment traders that were, um, you know, that were, were riding some of these trends and exacerbating some of these trends, you know, rather than somehow altruistically trying to stabilize things for the benefit of, of, of anybody else. Now, another question that relates to this is about the the silver squeeze that sort of, uh, you know, happened yesterday. And I, I would be interested in your thoughts on, uh, I think there's a new viewpoint in the market amongst certain investors that you can sort of all get together and pile in and sort of bully the market to your price. Now, I would argue that you never want to do that because, you know, if you if you move the market on the way up, it's almost like a conservation of energy idea. If, if you're going to if you're taking a big position is going to push it up, you're exiting that big position will push it down and almost nothing will have happened. What are your thoughts on people trying to trade in size and make the market do what they want? Well, you know, I'd say um, a couple of things. I mean, first, like, you know, look, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, I mean, it's amazing if you read, you know, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and, you know, like all these things that he's talking back about in the late 18th century are like things that we can recognize in our economies today. 
Um, and then, you know, more recently, you know, the, a lot of us Wall Street guys have, have uh, loved the book Reminiscences of a Stock Operator and, you know, sort of these syndicates pushing things around with something that was going on back then in a less, in a less regulated environment. So, um, so you know, it's not that this, this stuff is new. I think, you know, the, the general idea of trying to push things, uh, you know, trying to push things and then liquidate, you know, in general, that's a tough strategy to make work. However, um, you know, there are these uh, special situations, you know, I think you could, we could refer to them as, uh, you know, when there's, when there's trades on close, right? You know, that, that to the extent that there are certain situations where, um, you know, there's a trade, there's trades that are going to happen at the closing price, for instance, no matter what the closing price is, you know, then, um, you know, pushing things can make a lot of sense, you know, although, um, you know, I think that in many cases it's 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 it is uh, over the line, or it could be over the line in terms of um, you know um, regulatory and, and and legal boundaries. So, you know what I mean. What seems to have happened, for instance, when oil traded to negative what thirty eight or forty dollars a barrel, is that a bunch of people had these um, orders to sell. Uh, sorry to. That, yeah, that they needed to sell on close, right? So um, you had these, you know, you had a bunch of oil traders that realized that there were some really big sell on close orders and they just pushed, kept pushing the price down. And then there was a big trade that happened, you know, at those uh, big negative rates. And there's lots of situations where this happens. I mean, it can happen with uh, people having shorts that need to get covered if the price gets high enough. It can happen with with stops, you know, and, 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 you know, the regulators have tried to reduce those situations, you know, where people used to put stop orders in, stop loss orders. They've gotten rid of the NICE, I think, no longer hold stop orders because they were just yeah, because, destroying know, retail investors. They're there. You try to, you know, people would try to push things down to stops or push things up to stops, you know, on the other side. So there's all these different things that are out there, but, you know, the markets have gotten pretty efficient about them. The regulators have, have you know, are worried about them. You know, you have index inclusion, you know, like index inclusion on, you know, is another kind of uh, trade on closed situation, you know, but, um, but the markets can get pretty efficient about this because if everybody knows about it, if there's enough capital, you know, then the anomaly should get competed away and people should respond to it. So, you know, I think in general, you know, like, just saying, let's let's see if we can, you know, push silver up and then we can all get out. You know, that probably is a pretty tough thing to make work, um, you know, but if some, you know, if there's a lot of shorts out there and you kind of know that that uh, at a certain price, the shorts have to cover because they're running out of capital, then, you know, that's that can be, that can work better, um, yeah. you know, but it's kind of unusual that you ever get shorts that are so concentrated and so big like that. I mean, it takes a, you know, that. GameStop is unusual because it just doesn't happen. It's a surprising level of short interest. Like I, I had to kind of go through the rules to work out exactly how it worked a, a while ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I guess in leading from your LTCM to Elm journey, I, I guess, you know, what are your thoughts on a lot of the kind of more aggressive uh, sort of hedge fund style trades like shorting stocks or like bond arbitrage because obviously you've moved away from that more towards a, a more standard approach to investing which you you feel is more likely to grow your wealth well and and it makes more sense for individual investors you know i think that 
um, you know, that certain hedge fund strategies might make sense large institutional investors as parts of their portfolio. But, you know, in general, for individual investors that, that don't have the resources that a Yale endowment might have at their disposal or their connections, um, you know, maybe some hedge fund strategies work. But for individual investors, I think it's a tough call to make sense of having that within your portfolio, and especially um, for U.S. taxable investors. You know, in general, hedge funds have a terrible tax treatment in terms of not being able to use itemized deductions and uh, miscellaneous itemized deductions on management fees and, um, you know, not getting much in the way of deferral and so on. Um, you know, I think that, you know, one of the, the, the sort of the, the, you could think of the spectrum of hedge fund activities, you know, as being sort of, you know, close to arbitrage type activities where you're doing longs versus shorts on things that are almost the same, but have a valuation or price discrepancy, you know, all the way over to more subjective macro um, strategies, you know, that are uh, trading in very liquid um, instruments, you know, maybe don't have a lot of leverage because there's a lot of risk in, in just the price action of things. And, um, you know, I think on this side that's kind of close to arbitrage or the relative value side, I think it's really a tough business for hedge funds, and you know that 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 a lot of the a lot of the failures and blowups that we've seen historically in hedge funds have been long, short, fixed income funds such as LTCM, but there have been others. And you know the difficulty is that if you have two things that are really the same, when once their prices are have diverged from each other, it's like what's the behavior can be so weird because. Because yeah. they should be the same and they should be tracking each other, but now they're not. Then it's like, well, what is causing, you know, what's driving that exactly? Well, once it gets it crazy, it, it can keep getting crazy. Yeah, right? There's no real limit on it, right? I mean, there's no yeah. limit. Uh, so you look historically and it's like, oh, that gives me some idea. But that doesn't really give you much of an idea. And there's just no safe level of leverage, really, that you can apply to that. Um, you know, it really depends upon... Um, the flow dynamics in terms of whether somebody's going to get stopped out and need to liquidate, and then when the next, where's the next person that's willing to put that on their books? So I think that you know the relative value trading makes a lot of sense as a small part of capital that's being used for other things. So ironically, or maybe paradoxically, you know I think that those activities make sense within big financial institutions, big banks, for instance. You know that I think it makes sense for J.P. Morgan to be doing some of that activity as a small part of the overall uh, activity of JP Morgan. But with a standalone pool of capital, I think it's dangerous to, to do that. And I think that's, you know, at, at Solomon Brothers, you know, I think it made a lot of sense what we were doing. It was a good, I think it was a, a, a sensible part of the, um, of the business mix of Solomon Brothers, as long as it was kept small enough relative to Solomon's capital. But as a standalone pool of capital, you know, I'm not that. Uh, I don't. I don't think it's that great um, as a, as a business, as a small part of another hedge fund. You know, so you know, does it make sense for some large hedge fund group to allocate 10% of their capital to this? Sure, that's fine. Also, but as a standalone pool doing it, I think it's a tough one, and that's why there aren't that many. You know, you can really list on the fingers of your hand the number of successful. Uh, highly leveraged, long, short, uh, relative value hedge funds out there. Then as you move along the spectrum, you know, the uh, the leverage should be going down, you know, so that's the highest leverage activity. And then as you go 
all the way over to, um, you know, macro funds, you know, they shouldn't, you know, they tend not to be using a lot of leverage. They can use a lot of options to, to, uh, to manage their risk and to get their exposures and so on. And, um, you know, there, you know, there are, um, you know, talented, uh, you know, talented um, managers out there. I mean, you know, the, the problem with hedge funds is that the really successful hedge funds just go private, right? So, you know, you know, here's medallion fund uh, private, you know, making a 75% return. And it's like, oh, well, you know, but then, you know, they, they maybe they make $10 billion a year on medallion, but then they have a year where they've lost investors $25 billion in these um, publicly available sorts yeah. of strategies. So it just really tells you like, geez, you know, when somebody really finds, you know, that great, um, you know, when, when somebody kind of breaks the code in some way, okay, that's, that's great for them, you know, not so yeah. great for hedge fund investors. I think there's an interesting thing where a, a lot of time people ask me, should they invest in hedge funds? And they're always surprised that I say usually no, uh, even though I've spent my whole life in, in the industry. But I think one of the reasons is just that a regular investor can't necessarily even understand. And I, I don't mean that they're not smart enough to understand. I mean that the risks are sort of hidden. And, and before things went wrong at LTCM, it wasn't obvious what would go wrong. And a good example, like when you talk about relative value and how it shouldn't necessarily go too horribly wrong, the Volkswagen spread from, what was that, around 2008. And once again, it made no sense, but once it started going wrong, it just there, there's there's no end to it. Yeah, I mean that's one of the most amazing uh, episodes out there. I mean, and and and, and it's just one. It, it's like every couple of years, it's like the most amazing thing you could ever imagine happens. You know, and 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 uh, the ability of the markets to create new narratives and new surprises. Um, you know, it's just, it's just remarkable. Yeah. It, it does seem that the hundred year storm comes about once every two years in stock. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so my, my next question then is, so you, you had done all of this and then you moved to, you, you set up Elm Partners. Elm Partners is, you, you didn't want to just index. Tell me why you didn't want to just index. Well, I guess the, the, Two, two reasons, okay? So the first one is a uh, sort of a, a, a logical, well-grounded reason that um, the amount of risk that one should take in their portfolio should be uh, proportional or a function of um, the uh, attractiveness of the investment opportunity set. So when equities have a higher uh, expected return relative to safe alternatives, all else equal, you should want to have more of your money invested in equities. And when equities are offering returns that are uh, close to or, or much closer to risk-free alternatives, you should want to be taking very little equity exposure. You know, assuming this world of equities and, and risk-free assets just as a starting point, which is a good, you know, which is a good representation actually of the opportunity set. So you do want to dynamically scale up and down you know, when you think expected returns are higher or lower, assuming risk is relatively, uh, long-term risk is relatively constant. And then the question is, well, um, can you observe and, and estimate different expected returns on equities relative to low-risk assets? And the answer is 
yes. I mean, that uh, a very sim- the simplest metric is, is using the earnings yield as an estimate of the long-term expected real return of equities. So I, I look at earnings divided by the price of what I'm buying. Uh, I could do it cyclically adjusted using the last 10 years as, as popularized by Bob Schiller, or I could look at last year, or I could look at a forward, whatever it is. But somehow the earnings yield is a good estimate of the long-term expected real return of equities. Um, and you know, historical data supports that and logic also supports that. The idea that companies, you know, that if companies were not paying any, uh, sorry, if companies were paying out all their earnings as dividends, that they would be able to keep their earnings uh, in line with inflation. And if they retain earnings, they can grow their earnings faster than inflation. And that's what we've seen, and it makes sense. So we, we have an estimate of the expected long-term real return of equities. We can see the uh, long-term expected real return on government bonds, especially easily today, that we have index-linked bonds, inflation-linked bonds in all of the major uh, economies. So we can just compare those two. And when that, when that difference is big, as it is today, actually, relatively big today, you should want to have more of your portfolio in equities than when it's low, like it was in 1999, when uh, tips were yielding about 4% and the earnings yield of equities was around 4%. They were pretty close to each other. You probably didn't want to have a lot of equity risk in 1999. So fundamentally, and this is this has nothing to do with markets being inefficient. It has nothing to do with alpha. It's, this, is, this is just pure, you know, sensible, common sense thinking and uh, financial economic thinking as well. So that means you should change your allocation over time as the expected return, excess expected return of equities is changing. The second reason, so that's the first reason. The second reason is that behaviorally, nobody, uh, virtually nobody can maintain a static allocation to equities over time. It's just, it's just humanly very difficult to do that, that we just, we, we read the newspapers, we uh, turn on the TV, whatever, you know, and we just want to change things, you know. So, you know, we might start off with, oh, uh, you know, I think I just want to be 60% in equities for the rest of my life. And then a year later, you change it to 63% or 55%. And you're just, you know, you're going to do that even if you sort of mentally committed. Now, I think these days there are some ways of, of uh, you know, like if you have a 401k plan, and you've invested in a target date fund, you know, you probably are going to be more, you know, people are more static today than they used to be. But still, you know, there's this behavioral urge. And sometimes it just gets overwhelming, you know, so like the worst thing is to be static for five years. And then finally, it's like, I can't take it anymore. The market's down 30%. And you just blow out of all your equity risk. And then you don't really have a strategy for getting back into it again. It's like, oh, that was good. I'm glad I sold out because the market kept going down. But then you forget to buy back. And uh, the next thing you know, it's higher than where you sold it. And, and you go for five years being all in cash. Jack Schweiger had a very interesting piece in one of his books, Market Sense and Nonsense, that showed um, he did research on how people invest in funds. And he looked at that people, even in the best performing funds, people tended to lose money. And the reason they lost money was they kept changing. They always added after a good period and always cut after a, a slump. Yeah, yeah. There's been lots of studies of that. It's, you know, it's the comparison of, uh, of uh, what they, 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 I think they call it, you know, uh, the comparison of investor returns versus, um, 
versus fund returns. I think that's the way that it's often characterized. So you look at the uh, the IRR of the fund itself, you know, a dollar invested and where did that go? And that can be 400 basis points higher than the IRR experienced by the money going in and out of the fund. It's remarkable. And yeah. Dalvar and others have, have quantified it and there's lots of papers out there on that. Yeah. yeah. Now, the other thing you do at Elm Partners is a lot of international diversification, right? And how, how do you deal with that? Is that, are you looking for sort of global value and, and reallocating globally based upon CAPE ratio or how, how does that work? Well, our, our, our baseline, uh, the, the baseline of the portfolio before we uh, increase or decrease based on uh, the relative attractiveness of the different regions. Our baseline is highly diversified. We have in our baseline portfolios, it's about 50% U.S. and 50% non-U.S., um, which you know we think is actually pretty overweighted to the U.S. as it is, although the average U.S. investor has about 10 to 15% non-U.S. exposure. Um, you know, I mean, the starting point is just thinking about the market portfolio and getting more diversification through international, you know, through owning everything. I mean, the, the starting point is you just want to own everything that you can own efficiently. And so that's the whole world. And then you think about, you know, how big is the U.S., you know, in, in the world? Well, on a population basis, it's whatever, 5%. On a GDP basis, it's, you know, 20% or 15%. On a uh, even on an earnings of public companies basis, you know it's like thirty uh, percent. On a on a on an unadjusted market cap basis, because you know that MSCI and FTSE both do float and investability uh, adjustments. If FTSE and MSCI didn't do any adjustments at all and just looked at the market cap of every single publicly listed equity, uh, U.S. equities would be thirty five percent of global market cap. Now, adjusted for uh, float and investability, uh, FTSE and MSCI put the U.S. at 55%. So there's a 20% difference for the float and adjust, uh, float and uh, investability considerations that they have. But, you know, clearly, uh, I mean, the U.K. at one point was, you know, 50% of market cap, and now it's 5% of market cap. And I think that, you know, as, as the world develops, um, which is a wonderful thing, um, you know, it's, it, it, the U.S. will, uh, you know, will see some convergence over time in per capita GDP across the world. And as we see per capita GDP converging across the world, you know, we'll see market cap of, of uh, equity markets converging to population. And, you know, and we'll see the U.S. down at 10 or 15 percent before long. Um, you know, I mean, at the moment, you know, the U.S. has the high, you know, the U.S. has a valuation on earnings, which is probably close to two times the non-U.S. valuation, um, you know, because for, for a whole variety of reasons that we can speculate on. You know, we don't know exactly why it is, but, you know, the U.S. is, is trading on kind of twice the multiple of the rest of the world. There's a good uh, book called Triumph of the Optimist by Elroy Dimson, where he looks at the very long history of equity market return. I think it's actually markets in general, but I, I pay attention to the equity side of it. And he shows that the surprising thing that even though the United States, like the return of equities in the United States looks amazing over the last hundred years, but a lot of people say, well, that's because the United States was sort of an emerging market that emerged. 
and that the global markets, you know, that equity ownership in general isn't that good. And actually, Elroy's research shows, we'll say, for example, Britain, that over the same period went through two world wars uh, in which they were almost invaded, plus the loss of an empire, and you get very similar returns. And in fact, even place like South Africa, just globally, there is a return to investing in company ownership. Yeah, I mean, you're you're investing in uh, in human productivity growth, right? I mean, you're investing, right? I mean, it makes it makes sense that um, you know that investing in equities is giving you sort of this participation in per capita GDP growth, which is coming about through productivity, uh, innovation, etc. So it's a you know, um, I mean, it does. You know, there are, there are times when it doesn't. You know, there are times when the market. Uh, you know, like, as I say, in 1999, you know, we had this period where, um, uh, you know, real rates, real rate, long-term real rates on tips or index link bonds was around 4%. And equity markets, you know, were probably offering a 4, 5, 6% real return. And, you know, it just made more sense to own 30-year uh, bonds at that point, uh, away from taxation issues. You know, it made sense to have most of your money in 30-year bonds than it did to have it in, in uh, global equities. Um, but um, And it's great that we have these index-linked bonds now so that we can really see this because before, you know, before the mid, I mean, be, well, U.S. tips started in 98, 99, and index-linked guilds started, well, maybe, well, I guess maybe mid-80s or so for the first few index-linked guilds. But it's a shame that we don't have that history going back because that's really the thing you want to look at. Um, you know, it's really hard when we when when it's so hard to predict inflation. You know, we really don't know what was going on prior to that. Now, one of the things I really enjoy, I think probably for five years or more, I've been signed up to your mailing list from Elm Partners. That, that's available to anyone, isn't it? Like anyone can Absolutely. sign up. Yeah, we, yeah we, we love for people to read our stuff and to interact with us. Well, you, you do great papers. Like, uh, you know, the, most investment uh, firms, if you sign up for their mailing, you just, at least I delete them largely on red. But I look forward to, to your work because it's, thought-provoking research. And you had a really interesting one on diversification and inequality uh, a little while ago. Um, can, can you explain that a little bit to the audience, the sort of inequality argument that you have? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's one of the uh, things that we've written about that I really like the most. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe it was our timing of sending it out or whatever. Or maybe it was just the way we wrote it, you know, that didn't get as much traction uh, and discussion as we had, uh, we had hoped. But, um, you know, I mean, there's been all the uh, all this uh, you know, talk about the forces creating inequality. And we have, um, you know, Thomas Piketty and, and his crew, um, you know, with this the R minus G argument, which really, yeah. you know, is is, is um, I don't subscribe to, you know, that, that um, the return on capital is uh, what, what the, 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 um, uh, well, the, the, the return, return on capital, uh, you know, in the long run, it doesn't seem to me that it can outstrip G like in the short run, it can, but the, yeah. they're, they're intrinsically linked to each other. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, that empirically, we just don't see it. I mean, he, he always sort of brushes over the fact that, uh, yeah, we, we have this in, inequality, but it's all different people rising to the top, you know, that the rich list is yeah. really different than it was 30, 40 years ago. Anyway, um, so th there have been other, uh, you know, papers in the, uh, on what things might be causing inequality. And so there's this, 
there was this uh, paper that was called the yard sale model, where it's like people are flipping coins with each other and, um, and whoever gets lucky and wins um, is in a better position to extract, uh, you know, more wealth from all the people that have lost, so to speak. And, and that's yeah. this yard sale model. And we were thinking about it and it's like, well, that doesn't, you know, feel that good. And then we were thinking about this research that uh, this, this uh, uh, Professor Bessembinder did, I, maybe down in New Mexico is where he's based. I don't know if you've seen that, but he did this, um, you know, some big data look at individual equities. And he found that, uh, that, that the average stock or that 50% of individual equities um, have underperformed treasury bills. Oh, I have seen this. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a pretty well-known finding that he, that he had. And so, um, and it's like, well, what's going on here? You know, the, the market has, has outperformed treasury bills by 6% or something, but over half of the companies underperformed treasury bills. And, you know, and the reason for that is that, um, uh, you know, in general stocks are, are doing sort of a geometric Brownian motion. Right. And so, their, their arithmetic returns are close to 6%. Their arithmetic uh, excess returns around 6%, but their geometric compound returns are closer to treasury bills. In other words, that stocks can go up tenfold, but they can only go down 100%. They can go up 6,000%, but they can only go down 100% is the easiest way of seeing that. And so, yeah. you know, um, we were thinking like, is it the case that if investors were overly concentrated in uh, you know a small number of individual names, if they were taking too much risk in a small number of names, how far could that go in explaining uh, the inequality in wealth that we see in the U.S. or other places? You know the the Gini coefficients that we see in these places. And so we ran some simulations where we said, well, imagine that you have a population of people, you have a million or ten million investors, and all of these guys own different sets of three or four stocks, um, you know, how does wealth inequality sort of uh, emerge from that? And what we found is that, you know, you could pretty easily, um, you know, we put some bells and whistles to test out the robustness of it. And we found that you could pretty easily generate the kind of wealth inequality that we see in, in the U.S. And, and other places from that. And, um, you know, the really positive, you know, conclusion that you sort of take from this is that the more that uh, investors have been moving towards diversified portfolios through indexation uh, or mutual funds in general, um, you know, the more you get this positive externality of it. Uh, it's, I mean, it's good for individual investors themselves, and it's also good for society if you feel that, um, you know, wealth inequality has kind of got a negative externality to it. And, um, and, you know, and, and there's been all kinds of other studies done, you know, like in places like Sweden and India that are, you know, are showing individual investor behavior and, you know, and how historically it was very concentrated in just a few stocks. I mean, in the U.S., the Fed has a study where the median number of stocks in an individual brokerage account in the 1950s was two stocks. The people had one stock. Half the people had one stock in their brokerage account wow. and the other half of the people had more than one stock. Um, and um, but now, you know, that's all changing a lot. And that's a really good that's a really good thing. Um, and, you know, yeah, we're, we're we're kind of seeing a little bit of a blip right now, you know, like the Robin Hood crowd, et cetera, is, you know, tends to be pretty concentrated. And, uh, you know, we're kind of seeing a little bit of a, of a blip right now. But I think overall, the trajectory is 
Um, you know, the people are investing much more sensibly today. And, 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 it's, and it's a combination of the availability of the right instruments and the right programs, right? So you have a 401k, um, you know, you're, you're going to, you know, you're going to be like bumped into a, a good option to begin with, no matter what you think. And then you can change it if you want. But the availability of, of, of these great, uh, highly diversified portfolios at low cost is not a huge social benefit. Um, yeah. So anyway, so that's what we wrote about. And yeah, it's really interesting just to see how concentrated stock holdings can take you to as, as in, in equal a place as you can imagine. Now, the other one I was going to ask you about, because I kind of love it, and it, it almost links back to what we were sp speaking about just a minute ago, was the Costanza investing, um, the levered ETF and sizing bit. Because I, I worry when, when we talk once again about this GameStop thing or people piling into silver or whatever people might be doing sort of over the last week, that one of the things they're not taking into account is the importance of correctly sizing their bets. Do you want to talk a little bit about that idea? Sure. You know, that, that um, well, you know, investing, in, you know, in general, and, and we're, um, well, I'll say that we're trying to write a book on this topic, although it's pretty, looks pretty far out in the future, but in general, right, investing, there's two things that you need to do in investing. You know, the first one is you need to figure out what you want to invest in. You got to figure out what you think is going to go up, what you think is not going to go up, and, and sort of come up with, um, you know, the preferred things that you want to invest in. So it could be a global equity index fund, or it could be, you know, some, some more concentrated set of holdings or whatever. But the first thing is investment selection. And, you know, like 99% of, 99.9% uh, .9 of what we uh, hear about and read about and, and learn about even, you know, is, is, is valuation and, uh, you know, and, and trying to figure out um, what we should invest in. What's, what's the next thing that's going to go up? What's going to go up the most, et cetera. And, and then building, you know, portfolio from that. But the other part, the other thing that you have to do, right, is you have to size it. So once you've decided what you want to own, you have to make a sizing decision. How much do I want of that sort of ideal collection of, of, of trades or investments that I want? So, so part two or the second part of the investing process is the sizing question. And the sizing question is arguably more critical than the selection question because if you get the selection question wrong, but the sizing decision right, um, you'll be okay. You know, you're going to lose money, right? You're going to lose some money and you won't be too happy, you know, but you'll be, you'll be okay. You know, you'll, you, you, you live to right. fight another day, right? You live to fight another day, but you can get the selection question right, but the sizing question wrong and you're bankrupt, right? Mm -hmm. So, so an easy, like an easy way of thinking about it is like, if you knew, if I, you know, like, let's say that you're living in 1900 and I tell you, um, you know, the, the stock market's going to go up on average uh, 9% a year from now until 2020, 9% a year. And you're like, really? Are for sure? And you say, yeah, I'm, that's it. It's 9%. Okay. It's, I'm telling you right now, there's no it will be a 9% compound return from now until 2020, 420 yeah. years. And you say, oh my God, if I just invest, you know, $10,000, I'm going to be a trillionaire by the time I get to, you know, by the time my uh, great grandchildren get to enjoy, 
my my ten thousand dollar investment. Mm. And then, you, but then you think to yourself, well, if it's a nine percent return, um, geez, why do I just satisfy myself with investing ten thousand? I mean, I've got ten thousand dollars. Why am I going to satisfy myself just by being with ten thousand dollars in, in investing in the market? You know what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to leverage. I'm going to invest thirty thousand dollars in the market. I'm going to borrow twenty thousand dollars, and I'm going to invest thirty thousand dollars in the market. And so you do that, and it's like, wow, this is great, you know. And and you're like, you're making all this money to begin with, you know, etc. And then, unfortunately, you know, you just hit the first time that the market is down seventy percent, and you're wiped out. So you never, you know, you never made it. And and so you had the right investment decision, which is the stock market's a great thing to invest in. But if you get the sizing wrong, you're wiped out. And um, you know, I mean, in general, you know, when you when you are not using leverage. Um, you know, the sizing decision becomes more about, um, you know, not about being wiped out, but about having really subpar returns. And so you can see that, like, you know, in our paper that we wrote about leveraged ETFs, you know, you could see how, uh, you know, there were these cases where the ETF, where the, the underlying thing in the ETF uh, went up 2x, you know, but investors in the ETF lost 30% because of all of the volatility and the rebalancing, et cetera, that you have to do when you're using leverage. And, and even on an unleveraged basis, you know, you can get this, you can very much get this effect. Um, so sizing, you know, we think that sizing is, is really critical and, and should get as much attention from investors as, as, um, as investment selection. And indeed, you know, I think that, um, you know, we certainly, you know, at the, at the public level, right, you know, we see, uh, you know, which is where our discussion started, uh, you know, talking about entrepreneurs that have, that are 120% invested in their company because they actually borrowed money to pay taxes and to live on and to buy their house and cars. So they're multi-billionaires, you know, but they have a couple hundred million dollars of debt. They're all invested in their company. And, um, you know, they could be in a lot of trouble with that sort of sizing decision, you know, that, that they've made. Um, but you know, when they're that rich, you kind of say, oh, well, whatever, you know, what's the worst that can happen to them? But, um, you know, that's the, that's the puzzle of the missing billionaires is we should, you know, if people were investing, you know, that if people invested sensibly, we should have a lot more wealthy people today than we have, you know, based on wealth accumulations that we've seen over the last hundred odd years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you did, um, a number of years ago, was it a, a Ted talk that you did on that talk? What I'll do is I'll put a link to that. In sure, the yeah, description yeah. because the puzzle, the, the puzzle of the missing billion, the puzzle of the missing billionaires, exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess I, I should let you go. I've taken up over an hour of your time. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been really interesting. And uh, when we're both in London, we'll have to, and, and when you're allowed out in public again, we'll have to meet up at some point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I really enjoyed this, you know, as I did the seminar you invited me to in London. So it's uh, really, Really great. I hope we keep uh, having opportunities to chat about things. Sounds great. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks, Patrick. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.